going to jump into reading this intro and then we can go. Okay. Go. Ridley Scott's Blade Runner was released in 1982 and changed shot. Let me start that again, Bruce. Ridley Scott's Blade Runner was released in 1982 and changed science fiction and movies forever. Eventually. We'll get to that. An argument could easily be made that this is the most influential film ever made, as the ripples from the film can be seen to this day, not only in filmmaking, but in art, fashion, architecture, music, and technology. The film's source material was science fiction writer Philip K. Dick's 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, by way of an unlikely option secured by flipper actor Brian Kelly. In one of those brilliant behind-the-scenes moments I love about movies, like Barbara Hershey maybe being responsible for Harrison Ford being in the movie, or Stanley Kubrick's The Shining outtakes contributing to the tacked-on happy ending on the original theatrical version of Blade Runner. Similarities between Philip Dick's novel and the eventual movie include the presence of a dystopian future, the name of the main character, Rick Deckard, a noirish, hard-drinking, jaded detective who retires androids, and the presence of human-like facsimiles of people and animals in the future, as well as a love interest named Rachel. But as we'll discuss, there are more differences than commonalities. Various directors circled Dick's novel, including Martin Scorsese and To Kill a Mockingbird director Robert Mulligan. And Ridley Scott, hot off Alien, turned the film down initially until the death of his older brother drove him to seek an encompassing diversion from his pain and loss. Producer Michael Dealey optioned writer Hampton Fancher's draft of the script, and Scott and Fancher worked on it for months, while Dealey lined up financing from Filmways to cover the film's anticipated $15 million budget. But two weeks before filming was scheduled to begin, Filmways backed out after deciding to back Brian De Palma's noir thriller Blowout instead of Blade Runner. In 10 days, Michael Dealey managed to line up $21.5 million in financing in a three-way deal between the Ladd Company and Warner Brothers, Hong Kong producer Sir Run Run Shaw, and Bud Yorkin and Jerry Parencio, who were two-thirds of Norman Lear's tandem productions. Lear himself declined to invest in the film. Now, the name Blade Runner has nothing to do with Dick's original novel. Fancher remembers an obscure William S. Burroughs novel called Blade Runner, a movie. With all the principals agreeing, that was the best title for their movie. A deal was struck with Burroughs for use of the name. We'll talk about alternative casting later in a pod. As a teaser, though, could you see Tootsie as Rick Deckard? You almost did. Shame on you, you macho shithead. Jesus. Shot in the widescreen Panavision format with Ridley Scott obsessively painting each and every inch of the frame, Blade Runner suffered a legendarily difficult production and release. It would take a decade for the film to really catch on and become recognized for the absolute sheer genius it contains. Regarding the tough production on set, Blade Runner lighting gaffer Dick Hart cites my new favorite filmmaking adage. It's not the time it takes to take the takes that takes the time. It's the time between the takes that takes the time. Complicating matters further, there are no less than seven versions of the film. We will discuss them in passing, but for the purposes of this podcast, Bruce, I think it's safe for me and you to assume that we agree that the best version of the film is what's known as the final cut. Agreed. More personally, I find this film endlessly captivating and moving and astounding. 
and what it accomplishes, even as it has flaws, the film manages to represent the humanity that it so movingly and surprisingly captures. Perfection in imperfection, more human than human. What do you think of that, Bruce? I think that was great. First of all, I'll start with saying that originally, and actually you and I have discussed this before, but one, as a younger man, I think I was disappointed by the premise Hmm. not being what I wanted it to be. I was like, oh, cool. Uh, Basically, Indiana Jones chasing down androids. Awesome. And it obviously is not that. But as I grow and and learn to appreciate movies as a whole, and then with rewatching, and especially with with watching all of the amazing documentaries that come along with the final cut, the appreciation has grown so much. Like, put it this way. I still don't, really i don't want to say enjoy the movie but like it's not about me enjoying it it's about that it exists and not only (laughs) do i think that it's a masterpiece i think it's one of the masterpieces of like the world i I, and i mean that completely seriously like when you look at like for instance the mona lisa you look at david you know you look at all of these things they're not just representations of what the artist is capable of you know, or what they're trying to relate to you uh, and say to you and make you feel. They're also encapsulations of their world up to that time, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that was the best of the best when those works of art were created. Those were the best of the best. Similarly, with Blade Runner, you had the best, absolute best visionary director working at, at you know, that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the absolute best of the best craftsmen in in arguably the highest form of art in a way at the time that it was created mm-hmm. uh, and and all of them got together it was this miraculous uh you know coming together of everyone being in the right place at the right time with the right ideas and and the, the best execution possible there's never going to be a movie made again that does what they did better than this in so many ways and it is about the setting and it is about the the visual effects and the production design just as much as it is about the story it's it's everything was perfect everything was the vision of this one guy and by the way part of art part of the art of filmmaking is a director or producer or whoever but in this case director who is so good at wrangling all of these disasters mm-hmm. disagreements people fighting his vision and still sticking to your guns and being so specific to the point where, as we learned in, in uh, you know, one of the documentaries, like he showed up on set the first day with these in this miraculous set that was beautiful uh, with these <laughs> huge columns. And he walked on the set. And the first thing he said was those need to be flipped. <laughs> so like that attention to detail and that commitment and that willingness to, to, to be disliked and all of that, and yet still get the job done. That is an art in itself. And, and that's why I think Blade Runner is a, uh, beyond a masterpiece. It's like what it's inarguably one of the greatest movies ever made, but not probably f- for the reasons and in the ways that people normally attribute that title to you know like everybody's like all about the story and initially as we saw when the movie came out most people did not care for it it's funny what you said about harrison ford that it wasn't what you kind of wanted i mean i think that was a big issue for the movie when it was released was people were expecting to see han solo and indiana jones do some shit yes and instead they got this completely 180 degree brooding 
you know, moody, hurt, wimpy, I'm going to say. I mean, right. what's with what's with Deckard's like inability to kill anybody in the movie when supposedly that's been his whole job? That's sort of I'm not saying that's a flaw in the characterization because I think it's a really fascinating wrinkle in the characterization and probably goes hand in hand with the brilliant and ongoing debate over whether Deckard is a replicant or not, because you could look at those killings and his reaction to them and say, well, anyone is is horrified by killing you know, their kind, right? So if a human is killing another human, that's one thing. You would presume that a Blade Runner, whose job it is, is to retire replicants, doesn't have that same emotional devastation because these are not people. These are replicants. Yet every time Deckard kills a replicant, he is distraught. And I think that's a fascinating wrinkle in it. So yes, I think the Harrison character was kind of a brave choice for him to make as an actor. And I'm continually impressed by him as a real actor. You know, I think he, right. He, it's very easy to say he's a movie star and he is, but he's one of those very rarest of movie stars who really can act. And, and when you view this as of a piece, as I do with Blade Runner 2049, that's such an incredible arc to go on that journey. So I agree with you. It is a masterpiece. It is a work of art of the highest possible order. And I think those of us who love movies are going to always be drawn to this, really the last science fiction film ever made in a practical fashion. By that, I mean modeling, matte painting, lighting effects. Everything is in the camera, multiple passes of film with various layers. There is no CGI. And I think it's the last movie that was ever made like that, unless someone now is studiously trying to do that as sort of an homage and a callback. Right. And not, not only was, uh, you know, there no CGI, I was actually surprised that they even had a motion control camera because the rest of it is just so, right. you know, not cobbled together necessarily, but to an extent it was, but just so hands-on and, and mm-hmm. real and practical, but, you know, to get some of those amazing optical effects, which are to this day flawless and to this day, uh, you know, basically calling cards that that others cgi artists other other visual effects artists in general use as the highest example of what can be done and what what should be done really with movies and it's just stunning that you know he got douglas trumbull he got uh, i think uh you know just basically that entire team was was the exact right team at the exact right time for this for yeah. the story it doesn't hurt and you know we're going in a little bit into the production woes that they had nine months of development time <laughs> because of an actor strike, I right. believe, and that's one of those sort of happy coincidences that mm-hmm. it normally would have hurt a movie, but in this case, it really, you know, I absolutely they benefit from it because they they were able to do so many sketches and so much iteration and really nail that world and make that vision what it is and. You know, and again, as a as a kid, I was more aware of the iterations of Blade Runner and what came after than I was of the movie itself. So I, you know, the the impact is lessened. Like the the sort of you know appreciation and respect that it deserves was lessened because I was like, yeah, that it's similar to, and I won't go on too much of a rant here. The John Carter movie that came out in 2013 mm-hmm. that everybody was was you know, oh that's terrible. Looks like Star Wars: Phantom Menace. It's like that's because it's based on 
you know, John Carter inspired the the mm-hmm. original novels, inspired Star Wars and everything right. that came after it, basically. And they were just being, uh, uh, you know, sort of respectful of, of the source material, similar to how Blade Runner was the, you know, text that everyone else is right. cribbing off of from now on. But now going back and really learning about it, it's like, wow, this this, this stuff didn't exist before. Like they, and that's what's so amazing about it. It's like nobody did anything like this before this. Well, except Mobius. Right. Well, Heavy Metal I mean, Magazine. There you go. <laughs> heavy, I mean, so, you know, you, you said it comes from one visionary director, and I, and I think that's true in his ability to be who he was at the time, marshal the resources, stick to his vision at the expense of, you know, the love and appreciation of his crew and all of the things that were going on for Ridley, you know, as a Brit working in America for the first time differences between British crews and American crews and all that kind of stuff that happened on the set. But regardless of that, there are, there are sources other than the Philip K. Dick novel and visual sources that Ridley, you know, was experimenting with and, and putting on screen, even in alien. And I think there's a lot of continuity between obviously the people who worked on those films and his design influences and Mobius particular heavy metal magazine and, I was just leafing through the Blade Runner uh, 2049 book and you know it, it struck me that you can look at a photo and you can instantly know Blade Runner like the use of a cityscape neon signs gloom whether the photo is is from a piece of advertising or another film a trailer I just saw a trailer the other day for a forthcoming series it's completely Blade Runner I mean the influence is phenomenal and unreal and ongoing. And it is interesting to look at all the different sort of things that were marshaled together from Sid Mead's futurism to, you know, Mobius and uh, what is it? The forgotten tomorrow, the long tomorrow. What's that comic that uh, Dan O'Bannon and, and Mobius drew together. You might be right with the long tomorrow. I, I think it's the long tomorrow. It's so house. good. I mean, it's such an influence on Blade Runner. Clearly like that's the world. You can look at the buildings and you can look at the signs and the way, the insides of the buildings are stuck on the outside. And, and, you know, you can see that this stuff came from artists that Ridley Scott admired Uh, as an artist himself. I mean, you look at his storyboards, they're so good. And I, you know, I love the film. I mean, you said you don't necessarily enjoy it per se, but this time around, I loved it even more. I, I think the last time I watched it, and I've said on the pod a few times, I was kind of of the impression that, you know, the first two thirds of the movie are so visionary and and what we think of when we think of Blade Runner because it's all the world building. And the last third of the movie is really a chase scene between Roy Batty and Deckard. And I kind of slagged off the last third of the movie and saying like, yeah, it's too bad that, you know, the world building couldn't continue throughout the entirety of the movie. But this time around, and and that's, I think, to your point about it being a great work of art, like any great work of art, this time around, I had a different experience of watching the film. And I plugged into Roy Batty and what was going on with the replicants. And instead of viewing it as Deckard's story, which I think I did most of the other times, and instead of viewing it through the lens of someone who loves world building and complexity and layers and, and how did they do what they did, you know, this time I really plugged into kind of the emotional core of the movie. And I was moved all over again. And as you said, the excellent making of featurettes that exist, certainly on the iTunes version of this, I highly recommend people check out. I mean, I don't know if you want to do quite the deep dives that Bruce and I do, 
but I watched everything on there and it was all fascinating. It is a, it's, it's incredible that it was documented and that people have spoken about it to the degree that they have, because we will always have that. I thought it was, I thought it was amazing. If you love movies, if you love production design, if you love, you know, any sort of aspect, you know, and that's the thing about this movie. It's, it, you know how like there's musicians, musicians, you know what I mean? Like, yes. Like this movie is like a movie makers movie. Like, (laughs) like they're, this is what they reference. This is what they always come back to. This is what they like pass around. But, you know, obviously there's other examples of like, you know, indie and foreign guys and everything, but this is sort of like, if you're working on a genre thing, if you're working on science fiction, you're working on, you know, even horror to an extent, you have Mm -hmm. to reference Blade Runner it all comes back to Blade Runner and what they did. And by the way, we're we're recording this uh, on the 10 year anniversary of Mobius's death. So let's pour oh, one out. Oh, interesting! I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah, and, it's, and I guess it's going to be the 40th anniversary of the release of Blade Runner in later in March, right? Then it comes March 82, I think. See, I thought you planned this. No, I totally did so not. <laughs> I totally did not plan it. Um, Let's talk about the versions. So you and I originally in the movie theaters, it's kind of funny to me now that I think it's safe to say our first experience of the movie, maybe not, you're much younger than I am, but certainly my first experience of the movie and for a long time, my only experience of the movie was what I would now view as really the worst cut of the movie, which is the voiceover happy ending version. Yeah, I saw that one too first. And yet I, I don't really remember... Like, I don't remember being blown away by it the way I remember being blown away by a movie like Brazil, as I've talked about on other episodes of the pod. But now when I watch that version, it's, it is so inferior to the final cut that it's shocking to me. I mean, it's not shocking to me that, you know, uh, reaction cards from pre-release screenings and pressure from bond completion financiers resulted in the voiceover and in the happy ending, I think we've both read enough and watched enough to like, let's forever clear up and put on the record that, you know, Ridley Scott was not forced to do the voiceover. He, he, he acquiesced and thought it was going to help himself. Right. He says in one of the features, which I thought was so, so great. He's like, you know, you can either be ahead of your time or you can be behind the times. And a lot of people think it's great to be ahead of your time, but guess what? It's the same problem. You still have to explain yourself to people. <laughs> and I think right. he realized that that they needed some handholding. And it's really not a question of it being a bad decision in its time, even though I think we could say Harrison Ford is clearly not into it. And I think you can hear that. Like, yes, a noir voiceover should be world-weary, but he clearly hated doing it. I'd quit because I'd had a belly full of killing. But then I'd rather be a killer than a victim. And that's exactly what Bryant's threat about little people meant. So I hooked in once more thinking that if I couldn't take it, I'd split later. I didn't have to worry about Gaff. He was brown nosing for a promotion, so he didn't want me back anyway. And he didn't hide that. He himself... Yeah, that wasn't world weary. That was that, that was, was I hate this. Off. And yes. and he he himself says, you know, I think there are better takes than the ones they used in the movie. But I'm not sure Ridley was really the one putting them in at the end of the day. He certainly wasn't there recording them with Harrison. So there's that part. But also, you know, audience sophistication changes so much that now when you watch the final cut, which has all the narration stripped out 
and ends as Ridley originally wanted the film to end. Although he did shoot a number of alternative endings and a number of alternative versions of the happy ending, some which directly address the rep is Deckard a replicant issue, some which kind of leave you hanging. I think it's more a question that audiences grew more sophisticated and able to understand filmic language better so that he could remove some of the handholding, even as I don't think a well-written noir detective-esque voiceover would be out of place. I would enjoy that if there was a quality one written, but that's not what ended up happening. See, I don't know. I don't know that I think they're two very different movies. I think the first, the you know, original theatrical cut is clear a clear sort of a compromised mm-hmm. version trying to please a master that they really was never intended to please uh however it was way ahead of its time in the sense that audiences were absolutely not ready for it in fact i don't think if you released it today say everything you know sort of worked out and it was actually harrison ford is actually 30 five years old or whatever he was in that movie and all of that, you really sit today. I still don't think it would be a big hit just like Blade Runner 2049 wasn't because people don't want these lyrical art for art's sake, kind of mood pieces, essentially when they go to the movie theater and see the big stars, they want to see story. Like, like if you ever hear people complain about a great movie that, you know, is great. Mm-hmm. Like the green Knight, for instance, I don't know if you've seen David Lowry's green Knight. No. You know, and they go see it and they're like, well, well, what the hell is the story? I didn't understand. Like, well, nothing happened. Like, well, that's not the point. The point is not that things happen and that this, and that the, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not the point that. Yeah, that, the point is not that you're going to be spoon fed. Right. It, it's just like, go and like, like, just sit there and like, let it wash over you and like, let it tell you what it is. Like, you're coming into this with your own pre preconceived notions about what you want from it. And it doesn't give it to you. It's like, it's like, if you want that, there's plenty of movies that do that. There are plenty that that's why yeah. chilies exist. Well, you, you know, know what I mean? Like, well, it, it's also, I was thinking about this when I was watching the movie this time and all the making of stuff. I mean, you and I, and people that listen to this podcast are, are a different breed of the audience that we're talking about, because I would venture a guess that most of us appreciate and seek out films like Blade Runner that, not necessarily require that you do work because it's not a difficult film to watch as an audience member, but that reward either informed learned viewing or repeat viewing. It's always this thing that I come to with the filmmakers I admire the most. I think about this with David Fincher and films of his that I love. When you talk about a film that comes out and should have been more widely regarded, you know, Zodiac is just a astoundingly brilliant crime film, newspaper film, 70, whatever category of film you want to call it, it is among the top tier of all of those genres. Similarly, it just didn't resonate with an audience who I don't think wanted to go on this somewhat rambling journey for two hours and 45 minutes. Now, at the same time, I feel for these guys because when you when you look at what Fincher puts into a seven or a Zodiac, the level of attention to detail that a Denny Villeneuve is putting into Boyd Runner 2049, the visuals, the audio, the performances. I mean, it's it's astounding. It is more work than anyone possibly could know or could imagine. And probably for what percentage of the audience is it just kind of eye candy? I don't know, but it's probably most. Like people like us Absolutely. are probably... I don't know, are we 20% of the audience 
are we 10%? I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure we're not 75 or 80 or 90% of the audience anymore. Now, Blade Runner 2049 still got made and Dune still got made and Dune 2 is going to get made. And those are all very good things for us. So that part of the business, I think, still exists in some form or fashion. And there are filmmakers who are absolutely worthy of this, this mantle and picking it up and doing something even more incredible with it, as I think Danny Villeneuve did in Blade Runner 2049. So you, you, okay, let's delineate. Okay. Do you think Blade Runner 2049 is as good of a movie? Yes. As Blade Runner? I think it's a better, I think it's a better movie in a lot of ways. See, I, I'm on the same page in the sense that I enjoy it more. Like, I think that there's a much clearer story. There's a much clearer emotional and character arc, all of those things. Well, it's made in a different um, time. I mean, it's hard to compare because, again, I think filmmaking is more advanced and you can't have a, de- you would literally wouldn't have a Denny Villeneuve without Ridley Scott's Blade Runner in 1982. So he, he as a filmmaker exists in part because of this movie, because of books like Dune, like he is coming of age in absorbing science fiction of his time. And that informs what he's doing. But yes, I do think that as a film, 2049 has so many more advantages than, than, than Blade Runner did than really did. I mean, to think about what he did under the circumstances he was in, it's insane to think about filming this movie on the Warner Brothers, New York City street back lot. It's ridiculous. It's impossible to do, yet he did it. And to your point, Imagine what would have happened without a nine-month actor strike allowing those kind of craftspeople and model makers and matte painters all that time to really dial in everything that they were doing. This wouldn't probably have been what it is. So yes, when I watch Blade Runner 2049, I think it's also a masterwork of cinema. It's a master accomplishment of synthesizing the emotional center of Blade Runner and taking it to new places and tying it up in ways that we wanted and needed if we're fans of the original. Right. And, and it is a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. Gorgeous. I'm, I, the one of the most visually mind blowing movies to come out in the last like 20 years or so. And one of the and, best audio tracks of any movie ever made one of the best soundtracks. I mean, it has oh, a yeah. lot of similarity. I mean, Vangelis' soundtrack for Blade Runner is forever. It is one of the greatest film scores of all time. It will always be. Uh, But I also think what uh, Benjamin Walfish and Hans Zimmer did in 2049 is a similarly groundbreaking, stunning next step of sound design for the Blade Runner universe. So I'm a huge fan of all of them. And it's funny now when I watch all these different versions, you know, when I watch the, here's an example. I was reading an article and I was kind of like, God, that's such a contrary and weird opinion. I kind of respect it. Chris Nolan said for him, he's like a purist. He thinks that the original released version of a film, any film is the version. So for him, the, the theatrical release with the voiceover and the happy ending is Blade Runner. Like that's Blade Runner. Right. And we should talk about it as that's Blade Runner because he says the forces that come to bear on a movie are part of the story of the movie. And you can't just simply, you know, recut the movie 25 years later and say that's the movie, which I think is an interesting thing to debate. Although 
I think inarguably here, it makes for a better film to kind of put things back the way they could have been, as opposed to like Francis Ford Coppola tinkering with Apocalypse Now. I mean, Apocalypse Now was pretty freaking great already. Like, did we need him to go back four or five times and add and subtract <laughs> and do all this stuff? Like, it didn't really, it's not like the movie was ruined, you know, on release. So that's a certain type of tinkering. And maybe that's what Chris Nolan is more talking about. But I thought it was interesting to hear him say that for him, you know, the theatrical release is Blade Runner. Yeah. And well, Guillermo del Toro actually and he says that agrees too. with that. Yes. yes. I, Which I think is so weird because God, the voiceover is so bad. I mean, but these are guys who probably saw it in the theater, yeah. fell in love with it as is. Yeah, you're right. We're able to sort of, you know what I mean? And like, yeah. and like absorb it as it's, as a, a, a like sort of holistically and then right. carry that on. And that was before they were able to sort of access it on home video and all of this. And when it was on home video for the, for the most part, like 92 on, it mm-hmm. was the director's cut. So it, you know, they, they probably had this very strong affiliation to that and love it anyway, because if you, even with the, the voiceover, you can look beyond it or ignore it or, or just sort of absorb everything else that's going on, follow the story. And it still works as a great movie. What's funny is in the deleted scenes, there's actually good voiceover that they didn't use. Like there's a snippet of voiceover for before he goes to the noodle bar. Yeah. And it kind of explains who the Deckard character is. And it says that his wife left him and it talks a little bit about his experience on the police department. And it's actually really good. And they didn't use that at all. Right. <laughs> it's sort of like, and then there's other weird, there's more, you know, I, I guess what ended up, what's unfortunate to me about the voiceover is it absolutely tells you like, this is a nail when you're looking at a nail. <laughs> I mean, it's just so poorly yes. done. And Harrison Ford says, you know, at first there was a writer engaged by Bud Yorkin uh, to write the dialogue. And then that guy disappeared. And he has a really funny story about kind of showing up at a recording studio. And there's like a guy with a bow tie typing furiously on a typewriter. And he's kind of like, hi, I'm Harrison. And the guy's just like waves him off. Like, don't bother me, kid. And yes. that's the guy writing the VO and actually supervising the session. And they have some outtakes of... Uh, this guy talking to Harrison Ford while he's recording and like arguing and arguing with him. And you could just hear in Harrison Ford's voice just how frustrated he is. Tandem, Blade Runner, narration, quarter inch roll number three. And I thought this guy is so far away from the process that I, I mustn't uh, fall into the trap of trying to discuss this with him. Simply do it. Do it the best you can and uh, go home because I had arduously argued through other versions to try and get the best version we could of the narration, even though I didn't think it was necessary. All right, go ahead. Testing one, two, three. Gaff had been there. He'd let Rachel live. He had nothing to fear from Bryant, but a lot to fear from me if he'd killed her. I don't like that. Let's start again. Excuse me. Yeah. Didn't you say that bothered you? Uh, no, but I... Oh, I, I thought you said that was getting in your way. No, sir, not. I'm sorry, I heard you wrong. Go ahead, then. And it's also funny because, you know, if you think of Harrison Ford, you think of him as this sort of very soft-spoken, seemingly constantly stoned presence on talk shows nowadays. (laughs) And I think everybody, including himself, just talks about what a strong-willed and intelligent person he was and what he demanded on sets. Not that he's a difficult person, but that he's not going to just walk through the movie. He's going to ask questions about his apartment that they've designed for his character to live in. Right. And he has his own ideas about Deckard and he'll say, I would never live in this place. Right. Cause I think 
Sid Mead had had done some very kind of like playboy bachelor fantasy right. 70s type stuff. And he was like, right. no, no, take that shit out. We're not doing that. Um, and just to just to build on that and to go off on a Harrison Ford appreciation post, because <laughs> yeah, I, I feel yes. like as you know, time goes on, I appreciate him more and more. But he really is you know, essentially a brilliant writer in the sense that mm-hmm. he can, he, he looks at, and it's not just Blade Runner. He did this on mm-hmm. Indiana Jones. He did it on, uh, I'm sure, you know, witness, et cetera. Anyway, he, he looks at his script and he really thinks about it, not mm-hmm. just as like, what am I, what, you know, what am I here to do? What mm-hmm. is my character? He looks at it as what's going to make this a good movie. Like in this case mm-hmm. with Blade Runner, when he read it, he's like, Hey, I'm a detective you know, and this was like the one of the early Hampton Fancher uh, mm-hmm. drafts, and he was like, "I'm a detective, and in ninety percent of the movie, I'm not doing any detecting. <laughs> you know, it's all it's all in the voiceover, right. like, right. and that's what what sort of forced them to go and do the actual investigative piece of it, where he finds the scale and he looks. Well, that's not even him. The- <laughs> like, that's not even him. That's they shot another actor in in oh, in, with the, with in the London when he's yeah. in the bathtub oh, yeah. in the scale. They 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 had to do that later because uh, I think they got the note that there's no actual detecting in a detective movie. So if you look very carefully, uh, that's not Harrison Ford. That is another. That's his body double, uh, who has been his body double for his whole career, apparently, uh, which they used to kind of create that that moment. But yeah, I agree with you. I I, I can't believe he didn't win the Academy Award for 2049. I think he should have. Of course, that's a totally emotional reaction from me because of <laughs> the ability, the rare ability that we have to revisit this character, you know, 40 years later in the movie and see him bring the character. Uh, it's like he's been working on the character for the entire amount of time between the two movies. And that's what the performance feels like when you see it in 2049. And while we're on the subject of acting, I and this guy, I could be alone in this, but I honestly feel like Sean Young was uh, astounding. I thought she was amazing, perfect, amazing, perfect, perfect, perfect. In her first movie, it's ridiculous. I think it was technically it was her third movie, but still, it was it was you know an amazing performance, and she was dealing with a lot of like a lot sexual tension, yes. and, and you know, like Harrison being a dick to her. Let's be clear. Yeah. Like, yes, you know, that, not talking true. to her. Um, I think other people feeling like she didn't belong. Uh, but when you watch the, I found it so creepy and fascinating. It was almost like watching replicants when I was watching some of the, uh, the audition tapes for a couple of the other actors that they, they were auditioning to play Pris, the Daryl Hannah character. Right. And another woman that they were considering for Rachel and it's so weird, isn't it, to watch them inhabit the role completely differently and to think about a moment where Ridley and everyone is looking at these different tapes and making having to make a decision. And it seems easy now to say they made the right decision, but I'm not sure it was so easy in the moment, right? I right. mean, she, I, I thought she, I don't think anyone else could have done it. I mean, I think she has that otherworldly quality even then. Um, and maybe her kookiness now is part of what she was reading on screen then. But I know. mean, I could go, you know, we could probably do a whole episode on why I think her perceived mental uh, sort of breakdown was actually related to her being a little bit ahead of her time and trying maybe. to make, you know what I mean? Like fighting against the system that treated and treats women yes. awfully. And she's just, 
was in her own way trying to, you know, carve out and 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 yeah. say something for herself and rewatching it and seeing how great she is in this. I was just like, uh, you know, sort of really it's one of bummed. the great. It's definitely one of the great, you know, female film performances of its era. And I mean, I think she's the one who who filmed herself doing the Catwoman uh, audition tape, right? And then got yeah. kind of mocked for that. And I think that was good too. <laughs> that was that was a that was a great take on the character that would have worked. Yeah, she did she did a lot of nutty stuff to sort of like but, you, you know, know get it. Yeah. That's the fucking business. I mean, look what they're doing for a living, <laughs> you know? I mean, when you watch again, I keep going back to some of these outtakes because choices that were made influence what we see, obviously. And for example, the sex scene between Deckard and Rachel is underplayed in all cuts of the movie. But they obviously shot a much more kind of risque and intense one that actually doesn't work as well as the way they ended up playing it in the movie, which is kind of interesting. Um, But you feel for her. And I think a lot of people feel for her in the making of the film and say that that was a particularly tough thing. Uh, Michael Dealey, the producer, even Ridley, I think all have regrets over how that was handled back then. And her all the performances, that's the thing. You know, I'm doing an episode uh, next week about the making of Mad Max Fury Road. And oh. one of the one of the big takeaways from George Miller as a director is he has never been hands-on with the actors. And I think either his films have have suffered as a result or the actors themselves have suffered as a result. And Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy suffered as a result of his singular focus and attention on the visuals and what he knew he needed for the edit that was taking place in his mind, but he's not an actor's director. And Ridley, you would think as an art director himself, as a guy who made 2000 commercials in the UK before he ever directed a film is maybe not an actor's director, but my God, the performances in, in these movies are so good that he, he must be. And that's that speaks. I think. I think the casting director was also in some of those behind the scenes yes. stuff. But like the guy with the great the, hair. Yeah, she, <laughs> she. You know, or he. They. You know, that job too is 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 woefully underappreciated oh, by the by the larger sort of like. There should be an Academy people. Award for casting. Yes, and stunts. But let's not get started in the yeah, Academy okay. Awards. <laughs> I'll go on a big rant on that. But yeah, um, no, I mean, just it. It, it is it like. And then at Walsh, uh, you oh know, my God. James Olmos, like, okay, wait, you have to stop down here because there are a couple supporting performances that it's so easy to kind of overlook a Brian James or an MM at Walsh who are so expert at doing the thing that they do. But one of the fascinating things in the featurettes was there's a version of the scene where MM at Walsh's character and Deckard are watching. Uh, Leon's shooting of the Blade Runner in the very first scene in the film in the, the police station. And in the, in the outtake version, it's layered over with voiceover that explains who Walsh's character is and how he was the guy who keeps all your secrets, including all the ones you wish no one even knew. And that's how he, you know, it's kind of like a J. Edgar Hoover type presentation, right? A guy who keeps dirt on everyone in order to keep control of everyone. 
And it's actually another little piece of voiceover that I think works pretty well, but they ended up taking that out, obviously, in the final cut version and the director's version. And it still works. M. Emmett doesn't have any dialogue really in the scene. And with these looks that he gives the camera and Deckard's character, he conveys all of that stuff without words. And the same thing with Brian James, you know, who kind of has not a throwaway role, but you know, he's really got one great, he got one big scene in the beginning of the movie. And then he has the chase scene with Deckard where Rachel shoots him in the head and then he's gone. But man, he too, as a supporting actor, just delivers the goods and the subtlety of some of these takes. I think that's where I think Ridley has to be a great director of actors. There's another thing when Roy Batty gives this look to, um, to Pris, you know, when they're kind of threatening JF Sebastian before they go to Terrell's headquarters. Right. And, 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 um, Roy just does this, like he moves his cheek, he moves his eyebrow, you know, and it's, 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 it's Rutger Hauer doing something with his face that communicates a hundred words. And I think Ridley must know when he captures that moment from an actor, uh, he allows that to, to take place. Yeah. And that, and that's kind of my point about everything coming together to make this a singular of its time for all time masterpiece like it's like everybody was on their game like and delivering exactly what would make this the best version possible you know it, it, it's <laughs> yeah. not like and and uh brian james the the sort of like soulfulness that mm-hmm. came through that and that like childlike yes you know, like that all and that and yet you know he can he's capable of crushing a man's head, you know, like all these things like all came across. And it's like you said, this just like sort of throwaway side character. And the and cadence all, of that scene, the cadence of the dialogue where where the Blade Runner is, you know, mumbling his address and he he jumps on the end of the Blade Runner's line to answer this is my hotel. What about it? Yep. You know, like it's just such a weird, cool choice that gets made here if i talk you're kind of nervous when i take tests i just please don't move i'm sorry i already had an iq test this year i don't think i've ever had the action time is a factor in this so please pay attention i answer as quickly as you can One one eight seven Hunterwasser. That's the hotel. What? Where I live. Nice place. Yeah, sure, I guess. Is that part of the test? No, just warming you up. That's all. Huh. It's not fancy or anything. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand. When all of a sudden, this the test now? Yes. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand. When all of a sudden you look. What one? What? What desert? Doesn't make any difference. What desert is completely hypothetical. But how come I'd be there? Maybe you're fed up. Maybe you want to be by yourself. Who knows? You look down and you see a tortoise, Leon. It's crawling towards you. Tortoise? What's that? On the one hand, you read a lot about directors who are hands-off in the sense that, you know, I hired you because I think you're right for the role and your job is to inhabit the role. It's not my job to tell you what to do in that regard. Right. And then you have other directors who have a lot of thoughts about how you should be doing your job as an actor. And these different approaches work for different people, but 
to try and fabricate this world <laughs> on the New York City street on the Warner Brothers back lot in Culver City or wherever the hell it is, but to shoot at night <laughs> over and over again, where you know you have from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And lunch is at one in the morning. And <laughs> Ridley says in the featurettes, after lunch, everyone is tired. I don't care who you are. And after four or five nights of this, everyone is in this kind of zombified state. You know, you've become nocturnal. It's not natural. And you're just, it's a slog. It's horrible. And to shoot continually at night for as long as they were doing and to, to read contemporaneous reports of people walking through this set in the daylight and just thinking, what the fuck are these people doing? Like, what is this? You know, and it doesn't work until you see it all together. And when they had to show cuts to Bud Yorkin and Jerry Parencio, who really in the featurette either should be commended for bravely <laughs> allowing themselves to be so obviously the bad guys or uh, just don't know any better or didn't know any better. May he rest in peace, Bud Yorkin. But talk about two guys who didn't get it yeah. at the time. <laughs> and can you imagine, you know, Ridley, poor Ridley is like, has to show them a, an early cut <laughs> without the music properly put in, without color correction. I think it might have even, it wasn't, you know, wasn't color timed or corrected. And he was like, you know, I really shouldn't be showing you this. This is not going to work at all. And they're like, oh, no, no, we're, we're used to watching this stuff. We, we, we know how to read a cut. And of course they didn't. <laughs> you know, well, Bud Yorkin was had directed some like divorce American style yeah. or something else. But come on, and yeah, they said that he would show up and, and just be like, well, "This is where my money is going. What the hell is this?" And then he kind <laughs> he of wanted to direct it himself. Yes, he want, He was like, "I'll I'll direct it." Like, what is this kind of thing? And thank mm. thank God that didn't happen. But and for you know, but however, and perhaps this is my current uh, you know sort of career path uh, <laughs> influencing me. When you think about it and you are putting your own money on the line and you do show up to the set and it is such a singular, crazy vision that is impossible to impart un until you see it all together after the fact, I can understand that they, they come there and they're like, what the hell is happening here? Like, I get oh, it. Absolutely. I, you know, well, I don't problem, begrudge them that. Yeah. I mean, look, the problem is they were signed on to be the bond completion part, part of the financing. So that means that if the film ran over, they were legally obligated to provide the financing to finish the film. And if you're in that position, then they're in that position and that's the position they were in. And the film was going over budget and taking longer than expected. And there was a lot of frustration. There's a hilarious telegram sent by Bud Yorkin, essentially firing Michael Dealey and Ridley Scott, like the day after filming completed and before they were mm -hmm. beginning post-production. And it's, it's, it's shown in one of the featurettes and it says something like, uh, he's like, you know, effective immediately, you are removed from the Blade Runner payroll. And the words that come to mind are basta, which is an Italian yes. phrase, which means it's over, get out, go away, it's done. And Michael D and Dealey and, and Ridley are just like, they just ignored it and kept going to work and editing the film as they had to. So yeah, those guys did not know what they were getting into, but I mean, what did you expect? You're, you're hiring the guy who made Alien and you have to have trust. I mean, you have to let him do what he's going to do. Otherwise, there's no point in signing up to do it. That is true. You do wonder if like, did you guys see Alien? Because, <laughs> or like the commercials that came before, because yeah. it's like, clearly this guy not only knows what he's doing, but also gets very, very 
into like the the vibe of a place and right. the and the set design and the design well, of a thing. They were just outmatched. I mean, he's an immovable object. He yeah. has a he has even then he had a litany. If you've made 2000 commercials, you have a litany of producer tricks up your sleeve in order to bat away someone trying to shut your movie down, trying to fire you, trying to to sabotage your your set or your film. I mean, Ridley Scott was not going to let any of that stuff happen. And his supreme confidence, I think, is what allowed this to finally get pulled off to the degree that it was, which is why it's kind of so ironic that at the end of it, I think it was so exhausting that I don't know if he gave up or Michael Dealey gave up, but to allow that voiceover to be recorded the way it was and to be used was, was I just can't imagine that would have happened if, if people hadn't had like a month sleep, you know, and sort of well, said, the, let's yeah. get this right. That plus, you know, this is only his, his, his second major movie, his third movie overall. And he's, you know, his first movie really in America, right? Because the yes. other two were, were shot That's in England. That's very so, critically important. Yes. You know, and so he's probably a little like, well, you know, maybe I should, you know, like at that point. <laughs> Yeah. Like, yeah. And then unfortunately, I maybe someone read the tea leaves at some point, but like basically no one appreciated it when it opened. And no. it, it, there was that number one was the fact that the audience basically wasn't there for it. even Roger Ebert didn't like it Correct. and completely missed the point of it, um, much as he did with video games. But well, that's another story. <laughs> um, and the fact that E.T., Yes, you know one of my favorite movies of all time for Great a variety point. of reasons. It just it just took all of the air out yes. of every room, and also made you feel good, which people wanted for crying out yes. loud. It's the eighties; like we're all going to die in a nuclear holocaust. Right? Like you know, what do you want to go see? What's it's I, honestly that's kind of what happened with Blade Runner twenty forty nine too, which is ironic, right? right. So that came out in twenty seventeen. So yeah. what's going on in twenty seventeen in America? Are we feeling <laughs> positive about the future with Donald Trump being elected president, and then Blade Runner comes out and shows you you know a hellish landscape, a post apocalyptic hellish landscape and version of society that basically we felt like we were living through at the time, and Blade Runner comes out and it's nineteen eighty two and Reagan is president. Cold War is going on. Uh, same thing, right? Like, what are you yep. going to go see? E.T.? I'm going to go see E.T. in 1982 myself. Uh, so you're right. It's not as if the movie worked brilliantly and, and, and rated well on the screening cards. And then, you know, Yorkin and Parencio decided to put the voiceover in and, and demanded a happy ending. I think they were all just trying the best they could to, you know, that is the movie. That's the movie that was released. That's Blade Runner. And to talk now about the final cut, as I do and say, no, no, this is Blade Runner because it is, this is Blade Runner. This is what it should have been, but right. it is true that it wasn't that, <laughs> which is, uh, I don't know. It's almost like the replicant is he or isn't he, which makes me want to ask you at this point, uh, Bruce is Deckard a replicant? Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. Oh, I see. And, I, I think a hundred percent. No. Okay. I think yes, <laughs> because he, 
Wait, let's first, let's do the let's do the let's do the case four first because I I, I can recite the case four just as well as you can. So the okay. case for it from the original film because are, are, are you limiting yourself to just in Blade Runner or are you going to also use evidence gathered in 2049? I'm trying to keep it to just Blade Runner for now. Okay, let's keep it to just Blade Runner for this discussion. Fair enough. And in and in addition, deleted scenes, but scenes that were no, 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 to no. Be in the movie. No, no, no. I don't think you can use deleted scenes. Because if you're going to use deleted scenes, you know, again, I think I think for the purposes of the discussion, you have to limit it to the original cut. And there's there are some differences in the ending, obviously. But I think you could I think for the purposes of the discussion, we could say the original cut of the film and the final cut of the film. I think you can use evidence from both of those because if you go to deleted scene, there's one deleted scene where she says, I think we're, I think we were made for each other. That's two on the nose. And that's why they didn't use it because they do want the mystery to endure of whether he is or whether he isn't. Well, I'm going to say from those deleted scenes, there is the, the unicorn uh, dream sequence stuff. Right. But that's in the final cut. Well, I'm saying, but in addition to that, there is him finding the origami unicorn and it occurring to him. Oh, shit. The gaff knows about his dream. Exactly. There's that. Okay. Rebuttal. Rebuttal to that is it's entirely plausible that Blade Runners need to speak to psychological counselors in the Los Angeles Police Department given the brutal nature of their work. And it's entirely possible that during a session like that, Deckard might have told that therapist of a recurring dream that he has featuring the unicorn and that Gaff and M. Emmett Walsh's character have obviously access to his file, as Deckard says, using your logic of a deleted scene in a deleted scene where the voiceover <laughs> over his M. Emmett Walsh character says he keeps he keeps information on everyone and that's how he controls them. And Gaff could also be a blade runner or a blade you know, oh. a, a replicant uh that we and we we don't know that uh you know more advanced version whatever but you know there's that there's also if you look at you know i think it makes a more compelling and emotional story and it sort of fits the theme more and i have a suspicion the writers all felt this way and even really scott felt this way if it's someone who is killing his own kind and falling in love with who he's not supposed to fall in love with. Mm-hmm. If you add that layer to it, it becomes such a more rich and 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 Agreed. evolving. And you know what I mean? Like that's and it's played that. I mean, it's played that way, right? Right. He's 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 visibly distraught after every killing of a replicant. When right. He kills Pris. Uh, when he kills Zora. Right. He's he's visibly distraught, like he is shattered. And that would lead you to that would lead that would be a a tick in your column to say he is a replicant. But to your point, the the level of difficulty he experiences, replicants are supposed to be physically superior Mm -hmm. in every way. Mm -hmm. And that was that, you know, the way that he sort of gets his ass handed to him every time. <laughs> Replicant conspiracy theorists have answered that as well, Bruce, by saying that it's that's just down to a model. So Nexus six models are much stronger. That's why Deckard gets his ass kicked by Pris and every other, you know, Nexus six. But like Rachel, who is not a 
she is not a she is not an official brand of replicant, right? She's special, and maybe to get into Blade Runner twenty forty nine territory, maybe her specialness includes a non four year expiration date and the ability to have children. So right, but you're you're, you're still you're not even mentioning the most compelling Deckard as a replicant evidence from the original movie, which is. Which is the red eyes. Well, I well, you said deleted scenes are off the table. Well, no, so that's not deleted gonna... scenes. Because you... Rachel's eyes are red. Um, right. All of Pris's eyes are red in scenes. Roy's eyes, like they use, and it's discussed in the featurette. So that's not a deleted scene. But Ridley talks about in the featurette how purposefully they used a lighting and camera trick to right. illuminate the actual iris of the actor's eyes who were replicants and there's the scene in deckard's apartment yes where he moves behind rachel and she has the red flare in her eye just like the owl has just like yes other replicants have had and so does he and so does he just in a brief now you could also say well he's passing behind her in the frame and because he's passing by her in the frame, the same lighting trick that they're using to make her eyes go red is just happening to catch his eyes as it will. Uh, but, you know, he didn't take it out or redo it. So that didn't happen. Now, I think you mentioned the writers like Hampton Fancher is a hard no on the Decker is a replicant question. Hard no. Harrison Ford <laughs> is a hard no. Ridley Scott is kind of like, well, that's for you to decide. He likes to play it both ways. Well, he also likes androids quite a bit, as is evidenced <laughs> by the entirety of the rest of his, you know, his output. Yeah. Yes. So that evidence to you leads you to conclude beyond a preponderance of doubt that Deckard is a replicant in the original film. That and knowing that what Ridley Scott was doing, what his intentions were, what his thematic goals were, and that. Deckard being a replicant is sort of essential to making this a much more soulful, mm -hmm. uh, affecting movie. And mm -hmm. I think that that's always Ridley Scott's goal, especially in this case. Isn't the mystery more affecting than the answer? If the movie was about a mystery, it 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 would be about the mystery and not about the the uh, theme, the story, the soulful. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It would be it would be a detective story, and it's not. It is, but... So for you, the theme of the movie is clearly more human than human. Absolutely. And, and, if, and when, if you believe that, then it follows that Deckard is a replicant. And the very end of the movie, the, 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 the period on the end of the sentence mm -hmm. is Batty's speech yes. at the end and his yes. death and, and Deckard being like, holy shit, he's right, you know, kind of thing. To me, that's the end of the discussion. Like, like he realizes, like, I'm a horrible human being, but in that sense, a replicant. You know, like, what have I done? What am I doing? You know, and I, I, that's that's my take on it. Wait, you're talking about you're talking about Batty's saving of Deckard instead of killing him when he has the opportunity. That, but also his poetry, like his his like observations, his like the fact that he proves his humanity mm -hmm. uh despite his lack of apparent humanity like right well in that moment he's better than us right 
he saves Deckard's life when he doesn't have to. All he has to do is nothing, and Deckard falls off the roof and, and dies. Right. Which, against your point, Bruce, if he really was a replicant, would he die if he fell off the roof? Probably not. But um, he doesn't know that. I, I think that he was also programmed <laughs> to not know that he's a replicant. Okay, maybe. But I mean, but let's presume that I, I think that you're right that the Roy Batty sequence, which again is what I was so moved by this time, seeing that I'd, it missed me kind of all my other viewings that Batty makes this incredible choice. And it's a choice to save Deckard. And in doing so, cues up that indelible, incredible moment of poetry, which, by the way, Rutger Howard, the actor himself, yes. helped to make as indelible and moving and brilliant and beautiful uh, as it is in the film. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. So if you follow that through, and let's if if we consider that Blade Runner 2049 is is canon, then what we learn in 2049 is there's been a child, and the child was fathered by Deckard and birthed by Rachel, who died in childbirth. And Nyander Wallace, the Jared Leto character in 2049, wants this child because. He has a soliloquy about how he can't make enough replicants to essentially take over the universe is kind of the, the monomaniacal uh, drive that the character is shown to have, right? He says, you know, I can't make enough of these. And it's rumored that there is a child born of a replicant and a human because for Nyander Wallace, if it was the child of a replicant and a replicant, that's worse for him than if it's the child of a replicant and a human. Why? But then you have two. So, so put it this way. So in, you know, genetic testing or whatever, you, you can clearly come across mutants or, mm -hmm. you know, offshoots or whatever. So if you stumble upon the fact that you have two of those that are able to replicate, that's actually to his benefit because then if he gets uh, you know uh deckard or, or or whoever and locks him up and just basically takes his whatever you know figures out whatever makes him special too like an offshoot or a or a you know mutant whatever you you know mistake whatever you want to call it that was able to result in this sort of miracle of birth 
that's that would be his goal. And why else would Deckard try so hard to hide? And you know what I mean? Like those kinds of things. Like it because doesn't... I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. Because if if it's replicant and replicant, if it's replicant, replicant procreation, then Nyander Wallace is can't control it. Now, I, I actually I've seen Blade Runner 2049, you know, so many times, and I just watched it again the other night, but I was watching for other things. I'm pretty sure I, I don't know if um if Denny Villeneuve did the Iris trick in the same way that Ridley did, you know, with, uh, with Kay or with any of the other replicants in the film, mm-hmm. you know, cause that would be one easy way to see if he kind of flirted with that, but maybe leaving that out is the only choice because it's a bit too much of a giveaway and a tell. Like the fact that Ridley left in that shot where it happens to Deckard's eyes is pretty damn convincing for your argument. I would say also to your argument, Yes, Gaff leaving the unicorn means he knows Deckard has the recurring unicorn dream. And we know that dreams and memories that the replicants have in Blade Runner are not their own. And and Deckard does pick up the unicorn off the ground and he gives a, a nod of it confirming something he thought. That's his physical movement before he turns and goes into the elevator with her right. and the doors close. And what's the point of that otherwise? <sighs> I, he I knows think, that Gaff does that. He knows that. It, you know what I mean? It's not like, well, oh, I, he left one in here. Like, no, he's. I mean, Ridley says this, so he says it's much better left ambiguous than answered. So he's not trying to definitively state it. He wants this debate to happen, and it's a good debate to have happen. So I'm I'm glad Absolutely. that we've had the debate. And you know, similar to another, uh, you know, tragically underappreciated 1982 release, the thing. The end of that is ambiguous because, Indeed. and also can, features weird eye stuff. True, you know true, because it has the theory, right? The uh, what is it? A glassy eye theory in the thing. There's a similar eye theory that that you're supposed to be able to see a glassiness in characters' eyes who have the thing, who are the thing, and in the very last scene of the film, apparently you can see that same glassy eye thing meaning that the Kurt Russell character is the thing. Have you heard that theory? I've heard it, but I thought it was Keith David, but regardless, oh, no, it's Keith it's, David. Yes, you're right. I'm sorry. It's Keith uh, David. Yes. But regardless, I, I just, I think that that's a little bit, I don't think that that text is there. I know. Well, it's not Keith there in the film. Like, like yeah. uh, Carpenter never said that he intentionally did that in the same way that, you know, Ridley says, yes, I use this effect to create right. the red eye effect in the owl and in Rachel and in other characters in order to give you a tell for who is and is not a replicant. And similarly to the thing, uh, you know, to Ridley Scott being very thematically sort of like consistent with the thing with John Carpenter, he didn't want you to know at any point in the movie right. because the scares better that way. And he didn't, and Ridley Scott didn't want you to know it's, it's the same ambiguity, which is fine and, and great and all, but I do think that when you, go home and you're on the drive home after the movie thinking about it and you're like wait mm-hmm. actually if he's if he's a replicant that i'm i'm much sadder than i thought i was yeah and i'm trying to work in how i've only re- recently realized that my two favorite actors i think of all time are harrison ford and humphrey bogart and humphrey bogart would have played this part and and actually uh uh hampton fancher uh wrote it for robert mitchum who as we all know is basically Humphrey Bogart uh, right. plus 
you know, 10 years later, you know yes. what I mean? Or whatever. Now, speaking um, of alternative casting, cue audio, oh, yes. audio engineer Matt playing our alternative casting theme. Put that one back. Oh, Tootsie. <laughs> Tootsie as... Uh, Tootsie as Rick Deckard. Uh, and in the Hoffman. same year, by the way. And in the, the same, same year. year. <laughs> was Tootsie 82? I think it was, right? Oh, or that's 81 early, or 82. Isn't it? No. Oh, my God. That's crazy. I'm going to look it up now. While you're looking it up, I'll tell the listeners. So uh, in the early pre-production casting phase of the film, Dustin Hoffman became interested. And Dustin Hoffman at the time was really infamous for flirting with roles for months and months and months. And talking, 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 and making writers do innumerable versions of scripts to, in order to try and get the character and the script in the movie where he thought it should go. And they were pretty far down the road of Dustin Hoffman being <laughs> being Rick Deckard, which is, I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. I mean, he is clearly a phenomenal actor, but I'm not, I can't think of any role where Dustin Hoffman is a believable noirish action type individual. I mean, I could see Elliot Gould did an incredible noir detective uh, run in Altman's, uh, you know, detective magnum opus uh, playing Marlowe. And so someone like Elliot Gould, I could have seen doing it, but Dustin Hoffman. I don't get Well, <laughs> here's my, here's my argument for, and to, and back to my Humphrey Bogart. Is there point. one? Well, listen, Imagine <laughs> Dustin Hoffman in The Big Sleep, right? Or the Maltese Falcon. I can't. I can't. In the, I, I, can, I can. I can, I can imagine can. him in the Maltese Falcon, but he's playing the the uh, the what's his name character? Sydney Greenstreet. No, the other one. <laughs> oh yeah, the Falcon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's his uh, name? Peter Lorre. Yeah, he's playing the Peter Lorre character. Yes. Not I don't know. Bogart. See, I can see, I can, can? see, you know, like, look at oh, all the president's God. men. You don't think that he he was capable no, of that at no, the time of doing no, a no war? I do not. That is, that is maybe Bob Woodward, maybe, you know, Redford as Woodward is a plausible noir detective. See, to me, okay, so maybe this is, this is, I see an actual <laughs> noir detective as a, not just down on his luck, but like, I, uh, like you see him as like way, an underdog, so you think like a Razzo totally Rizzo underdog. type. Yes, underdog. like yeah, but like, but but a, a noir detective is always the smartest person in the room, except when he's having the wool pulled over his eyes. He can take a pasting. He's a tough guy. He's world weary. There are elements of that that Dustin Hoffman definitely could do. And as I said, he's a phenomenal actor, and he probably could do anything. But Harrison Ford is absolutely the right guy at the right time. Hundred percent. Even as though I think, you know, his own gloominess and just where he was as an actor at the time, Ridley is pretty straightforward, and Harrison is pretty straightforward. That he was, they did not get along during the making of the film. Mm -hmm. That he was essentially pretty silent and cruel to Sean Young, and and again, but whether that was part of what needed to happen in terms of the the vibe that had to happen between the two characters you know he needed to keep a distance and a wariness and a mistrust a distrust of her uh similarly referencing fury road same dynamic is at play with furiosa played by charlie's throne and tom hardy's character who 
have to essentially be warily distrustful of each other through the entire run of the movie until the very end. And right. he is a method actor and she is not. So he is in character at all times and she is not. And that makes for a very difficult set, but it makes for an incredible performance captured on film. So I don't know whether Harrison was doing that or not. To, to, to that point, though, I don't know if it was Harrison doing it or if it was. I, I think in, in Harrison Ford's case, he was, you know, 33 nights of shooting outside, you know, like really not, you know, the, the director seemingly being more involved with the art department than with the actors. All of that, I think, contributed to his displeasure and like saying that he he said he has said many times this that was the worst movie making experience of my life. However, I think he said it's like the worst movie making experience of my life and his favorite role. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like and both. he said that working with Rucker Hauer was his favorite, one of That's his right. favorite professional uh, moments of his life. But I, I, I think in this, in the case of you know Sean Young and that you know separation adding to it, and like whether that was intentional, I think you could point to Ridley Scott's appreciation of, and I think friendship with Stanley Kubrick, who did mm-hmm. the exact same thing to Shelley Duvall and Trent Nicholson on. Yes. on the shining um so it's i a cruel business yeah yeah and i think that it was a little bit intentional and that and that's go partially what he regrets uh you know i agree um i I'll, we would be remiss not to just take a pause in a moment here to say the word vangelis i mean yes as a film score i know you're a film score guy as i am another wave of appreciation that i had for this film was just how fucking brilliant this music is. And to think that literally everything you're hearing is composed by one enigmatic, <laughs> um, like frequently missing, uh, no one knows where he's working from, like mysterious genius who yes. came up with this music and it is so brilliant and evocative and of a piece with the film. It is absolutely, you know, I'm going to say 25 to 50% of what makes the film work in the way that it works. You know, I keep coming back to the, the, the theme in the beginning of the film where that one synthesizer note is kind of up high and then it just, it comes down and in that dropped in the dropping of that note can is contained the uh the disappointment of daily life in this environment it's just that one bended note conveys that it's so freaking brilliant and um a friend of mine sent me some amazing sort of information about about vangelis's music here so shout out to uh, Ralph Cavallero and his Instagram account at Eye of Zorro, who pointed out that that part of the brilliant, beautiful, I can't remember what's called, Memories of Green piano music, the kind of love theme for Deckard and Rachel, is an obscure Japanese video game. Do you know this? Really, I did not know that. <laughs> yes, he sent me the uh, the he, he sent me the game, which of course I think he actually owns a actual. He owns an actual game. It's it's one of the first handheld console. It's like a handheld video game. You can hear it. Like when you play the game, it, it is it is the 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 bleep 
the bleep bloop tones of what's called the Bambino UFO Master Blaster game. <laughs> of course it is. And it's an electronic game that was played and recorded as part of Memories of Green, which is that amazing, amazing piano music played over the Deckard and Rachel love scenes. So I just cannot say enough about, about the score. And it's funny because I've always been of the opinion that Vangelis's music is what kind of ruins Chariots of Fire. Well, because in Chariots of Fire, it's so synthy in a film that would otherwise be timeless that mm-hmm. it just takes me out of the movie every time I try to watch it again. And it's a movie I would otherwise love. But his music doesn't fit. It fits at the time because it's at the moment. That's kind of what people wanted. And that theme, yes, I hear all the people writing in and saying, are you kidding? The Chariots of Fire theme is iconic. It's a slow motion running on the beach. I just come back to what Steve Coogan says in, I think he does it in one of the um, one of the films that he does with Rob Bryden, where they're doing like in a person, he's doing an impression of a movie. His, his, his impression of Chariots of Fire is posh kid runs quite well. <laughs> uh so but vangelis i mean oh my god what can you say well it, well for what you can say is that this is yet another example that is sort of stuffed into this movie of the exact right person mm. at the exact right time for yeah. this exact subject matter like there what what other score could you possibly put on this movie it was it is perfect for this movie it is it is as much a part of it, like you said, as it's like the lifeblood that pumps underneath the skin. Like mm-hmm. it is, it, you can't separate them, and it is perfect for this movie. Absolutely perfect. And I'm not a, a particular fan of Angelus in general. Like I think that he has a very specific, mm-hmm. you know, sort of like vibe and purpose. And it just so happens that that specific vibe and purpose is Blade Runner. Doesn't really fit every film, but my God, no. <laughs> Ridley talks about kind of like going to visit Vangelis and he's just surrounded by, you know, synthesizers and keyboards. And he's almost spiritually like playing Ridley, these music selections while he's watching the film. And, you know, I think Ridley just knew he had caught lightning in a bottle and, and to also bridge the gap between Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. I think the score of 2049 pays such homage to Vangelis and uses those that similar kind of thunder crunk crunk sound which is at the 
top of the Hades scene in Blade Runner Mm -hmm. over the hellish landscape. And they either use the exact same track in 2049 or it was recreated and pays homage to that. They also use the dropping tone and they pay homage to the music while also just doing something sonically that's incredibly 2049 at the same time. So yeah, that's, I just keep coming back to what you said, Bruce. It's so fascinating to think about a movie as a thing that you experience and watch and why does it evoke what it evokes and all the work and all the money. It's so silly. It's such a silly human endeavor to make a movie, right? Like to what end? To make money and to make art. But the money comes first, as we can see in the history of Blade Runner, and the art takes a back seat, yet the money allows the art to be created and the attention to detail. And when if, if people do buy the film on iTunes, which gives you access to the extensive three and a half hour documentary about the making of Blade Runner and also a, new, a, a number of other featurettes really going department by department. So you can have. There's, the there's one about the posters. James. There's one about the posters and the graphic design. There's one about with the, with the writers, which is hilarious. There's one with just the craft guys, which is brilliant. And you can get a feel for how these different, how these sensibilities are different and And the way in which they talk about their craft is just makes you realize this is such a highly specialized human endeavor, uh, all in service of this thing called making movies. And yet what my takeaway is, is emotional. That's what Ridley Scott is able to evoke is emotion and thought. And to do that with moving images is incredible. And it's, it's a film that will live forever and stand the test of time. And I, I see it as, you know, you go to a museum, you look at, you know, a medieval triptych, you look at, you know, Sunday morning on the island of the Grand Jeté, you look at it and you have your connection to it and you have your experience mm-hmm. with it. And it's saying something to you and doing something to you that's personal to you. Mm-hmm. And that's what Blade Runner does as well. And it's the reason that it's so stunning and the reason that I keep coming back to the fact that it's art is that a hundred thousand percent know that Ridley Scott knew that and knew what he was doing Mm -hmm. and knew that that's what he wanted to do was to make this timeless thing that says so much and makes you feel so much and makes you discuss so much. Uh, And he somehow got all of these other people to, to do that too. Yeah. Like all these other people that, that, and that's the art of movie making. And that's the magic of movie making is that it's not a singular art. You're not a Mm -hmm. crazed artist in up in your studio (laughs) for hours with a palette of paint. You're, you are this collaborative person that has to know all of these different elements that go into it and how to get people to give you those elements. And if they're the right person and if they're not, and where Mm -hmm. are you going to get the money from it all? It is such a fascinating that's why there's movie podcasts. That's why there's movies. That's why there's movie <laughs> yes. fan. You know what I mean? It's because it's so, it's every art at once. And, and occasionally something comes along that just defines everything else. And Blade Runner is one of those things. Forever will be. Special shout out. You have to talk about Jordan Cronenweth when talking oh, yeah. about Blade Runner because much of what is visually brilliant about the film is because of Jordan Cronenweth's cinematography, his use of light, his use of darkness, those frames. Like when I said, I saw a frame in, in the Blade Runner 2049 book, and you just look at this frame without even looking at it. And this, these are drawings that were conceptual drawings for 2049 that were done 2015, 2016. 
But the way the light is used in the drawing is Jordan Cronenweth. It's his right. light. It's kind of like, uh, like you said, it, it's looking at a painter who is a master of using light. And when you hear Ridley talk about Jordan Cronenweth or any or Evangelis or the actors or the costume designers, the casting, I mean, he always, always, always is talking about how good they were and what they brought. And it's his job to be a son of a bitch who is not <laughs> satisfied until he gets what he wants. There's a really funny part in the featurette where he met the art director and he said, bad day for you, mate, or something. Yeah, you know, too bad for you, Chum. Too bad for you, Chum, because <laughs> you're going to have a shitty time on this film. But so the anecdote I was saying is that he walked into the room when they had, they'd been doing all this preparation work for what the world was going to look like and like the columns you mentioned and the signage and the neon and in front of the guys who did all that work, he said to Michael Dealey, the producer, like, well, it's never quite what you want, is it? Yeah. You never get all that you want, do you? And they were just like, what the fuck? <laughs> but it's that push, that drive that I think made something superlative. And again, goes to the art of, of movie making itself and how, why he's so good at it or was so good at it at that specific time. Mm-hmm. Um, not to, you know, I do think... I do think, for instance, uh, Alien Covenant is much uh, more, it's, it's a much better movie than people give it credit for. Mm, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. Go. I mentioned before that I saw a new trailer recently and I thought like, you can just look at it and say, oh, it's Blade Runner. It's right. the new Obi-Wan trailer from Disney+. Yes. Plus. If you look at that, you will, you will see Blade Runner. I mean, it is Blade Runner. So the, the influence just continues to this day. Two other funny asides. You know, there's an adage in Hollywood that nobody knows anything. In addition to the kind of funny, I think, story of how they arrived at the name Blade Runner for the film. Additionally, in Philip K. Dick novel, they were just called androids, right? It's right right there in the title. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Animals like sheep are the most valuable commodity in the universe. Yes. And that's hinted at a little bit in Blade Runner 2049 when Kate wouldn't uh, horse, which by the way, uh, has a little broken off unicorn to further tie back into the Deckard unicorn um, dream. Okay. So the horse that Kay remembers in a dream and then finds when he goes to the orphanage in 2049 is not just a horse, but Denny Villeneuve says that you can see it has a little nub where the horn broke off. So that further ties it to Deckard. That's another little throwaway. But anyway, the reason they're called replicants is because co-screenwriter David Peoples' eight-year-old daughter at the time was asking her father about this movie, and he was explaining that it involves androids or robots. He said, well, you can't call them androids. And he said, well, what do you think we should call them? She said, well, in science, we're studying replication. Why don't you call them replicants? Right. An eight-year-old really? came up with that. The eight-year-old of the guy who wrote Unforgiven, let's, let's, let's remember. Talent, I guess, must have passed down. The other hilarious thing is the whole concept of the origami animals being left by Gaff came up because Ridley Scott was enamored with a screenwriter named, uh, I think his first name is James, James Hjortsberg, who's known as Gats. Wow. And this guy, I think he wrote Legend that Ripley was kind of starting to think about mm-hmm. and work on. So anyway, this guy lived in Montana and there was a moment where the guy drove from Montana to Los Angeles 
to have, you know, to be around Ridley. And the drive was so monotonous and took so long that he says, you know, I would never do this, but like four hours out of LA, you know, I picked up a hitchhiker who seemed kind of normal. And, you know, I drove with him like four hours and he never said much in the car. But when he left the car, he said, here's a little something for your kindness. Thank you for being kind to me today. And he left an origami unicorn that he had fashioned during the ride. Wow. And once Ridley heard that story, he knew that was going to be a trope that he would use for the gaff character. So, you know, to your point, working with, working with talented people at the highest level of their craft. Yes. And then also in any great film, just all these weird happenstance things that either actors come up with like the blood in the glass when Harrison Ford takes a shot of the clear liquor and he's been beaten up and then his blood goes back into the glass. That's a Harrison Ford idea, not a Ridley Scott idea. Amazing. Um, the, 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 the origami is so iconic and it's, it, it never would have happened had not this strange writer taken a, you know, 12 hour car trip and got so bored out of his mind that he, that he picked up a vagrant uh, hitchhiker, you know, replicants being such a term that comes from an eight-year-old. I mean, it's just on and on, right? It's being open, I guess. I guess the point is it's being open, right? Uh, a lot of a lot of the filmmakers will say that Ridley would say to them, uh, I think it's one of the things that Hampton Fancher is pretty funny. He says one time Ridley said to him, what's outside the window? Yep. And Fancher's like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, like outside Deckard's apartment, what's outside the window? And Fancher's like, I don't fucking know what's outside. Who cares? We're not going outside right. the window. We're in the room. Ridley's like, think about it and leaves the room. And and he knows that like Hampton Fancher is so obsessive that of course he is going to think about it. And then he's going to go back and scrawl, you know, reams <laughs> of paper about what's outside the window. And that sort of informs how the world gets built. So and and arguably, by the way, speaking of its influence, I think that that idea, that concept of what's outside the window mm -hmm. informs literally every major Hollywood movie mm. and what what is now obviously just mm. blanket called IP uh, across the board. Like that's, if you don't know that you're not going to make, you mean in terms of creating a plausibly believable world that we as viewers can escape into. I mean, more, you need to have a wholly realized or an idea for a wholly realized mm. universe or place mm -hmm. so that IP can be made off of it in a thousand different iterations or your idea is not going to get made. Now you sound like the Nyander Wallace of content creation in 2022, Bruce. I'm just saying that's that, that, and it's coming from a pure place I and know. it's, and it's yeah. coming from genius, but that it, part of its influence is that it, it informed everything else that came after it. Everything has to be explained. Everything, yeah. even star Wars, when it first came out, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. didn't know. And you didn't, fucking need to know where the Jedi came from. <laughs> Who gives a shit? You know what I mean? Like well, you're, you're 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 ranting now about the requirement for fan service which is another podcast. So let's tie up this 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 particular podcast into a neat little bow. Is there anything else that you want to say or any other singular participants that we haven't mentioned? Just the visual effects artists who also revolutionized 
stuff Amazing. that e- even though they revolutionized it was never done again you know what i mean it was <laughs> yeah. like well no were, bruce it was done again on blade runner 2049 well okay so, besides that i yes. think you're sleeping on 2049 a little bit more than i would like i i not that i don't want to talk about it but it's it's its own movie yes. and its own podcast and <laughs> you know what i mean like okay I wanna, well we'll do that we'll do that one uh because yes. I'm, I'm spending it's going to take it's going to take years to prepare for that, or at least many, right. many months. So I'll continue working my way through all my extant Blade Runner 2049 uh, books, podcasts. There's a podcast that is only about the audio in Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> it's like a 24-part I... podcast that just dissects the audio, and I've never felt more seen than when I just Amazing. dive in to listen to that. Well, and you're also talking to a guy who makes it a appointment viewing to listen to a podcast that is solely about the Mission Impossible franchise. But in being about the Mission Impossible franchise, it's actually about... Uh, uh, it's about so much more. It's about it's, yeah, it is. It's, it's about, about it's life, about, isn't it, Bruce? It's about blockbuster filmmaking in modern yes. Hollywood, and it's got every craftsperson and and you know everyone you could ever want to hear. It's amazing, by the way. It's called Light the Fuse. Uh, it's it's great. But, okay, yes. I'll check it out. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for joining me again. I appreciate it. I really, really enjoyed the opportunity to just indulge myself in watching all of this Blade Runner making of stuff. I really encourage any any fan of the film who hasn't taken the time to just spend a couple months watching all the extant documentaries and making of stories and the books that are out there. Uh, Like the movie itself, all of this stuff is about the making of a movie, of a piece of commerce, of a piece of art. But in its own way, it's also a testament to the love and the art of craft and of human accomplishment and of what humans can dream up and make real out of whole cloth, which which uh, which is a singularly human ability uh, and one that is best represented in a film of magnificent brilliance like Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. So thank you, Bruce. We will talk again soon. Thank you. I hope so. All right. Bye.